the life of David. And I trust that's familiar to many of you. It's a display of compassion and of grace and of love from a king to an undeserving servant. It is quite simply a picture of unmerited grace. Now this is a remarkable picture, but to fully appreciate it, we're going to have to consider where David is in his text first. David's life is a familiar one, but let's consider what's transpired up to this point. David was anointed as king long ago when Samuel came to visit his little town. But he didn't see God's promise of anointing as king realized for many, many years. He uh, had temporary victories, like the killing of Goliath, but he had far more setbacks. He was hunted by King Saul, like we mentioned earlier, even though King Saul had initially welcomed him and given him a, a great standing in the kingdom. He then turned on him in jealousy and began to hunt him and persecute him throughout the the hills and the caves. David was forced to live in caves for 20 years or so. so. He thinks he finds a safe place to rest in. The soldiers arrive and he's forced to run away again. Once Saul dies, he thinks, perhaps now is the time. Now I will ascend to the throne and all of God's promises will be fulfilled. But a civil war begins as some of Saul's sons don't want to give up the throne that they think is rightfully theirs. So they, he has to um, wait still longer for the promises to be fulfilled. <clears throat> but finally, after much political intrigue and backstabbing, Second Samuel, First Samuel, display of human um, selfishness and, and wickedness. After all of that, That son of Saul who rebelled is killed and David becomes ruler over all of Israel, all of the united tribes. And that's how we find David in this text at the beginning of chapter 9. He has taken the throne. He's fighting the armies of uh, the pagan nations around him. He's doing what a king should do. He's acting in justice and in equity. But then he begins this chapter with a question which, which seems totally different than all the other activities that he's doing. He asks, Is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, who was Saul to David? He was his persecutor. He was the one who hunted him and ran him down through all the forests and caves. And who were the members of Saul's house? They were the ones who rebelled against David. They were his enemies, his archenemies, who resisted him. Instead of using royal power, uh, which he just had assumed, to erase these enemies completely, like he could have, David instead seeks to show kindness to them. This he wants to do, he says, for Jonathan's sake, his dearest friend, whom he had covenanted with uh, many, many years ago at this point. He remembers him. And he remembers how he protected him from his father's wrath. And he says, for this one, for the sake of this one, I will show kindness. Now, friends, this is a great example of kindness, of forgiveness, of turning the other cheek and blessing those who curse us. However beautiful as it is, it pictures for something, something for us far more beautiful than itself. It pictures how God shows kindness to sinners because of his covenant with Christ. 
And that's the central theme that we want to consider this evening, how God shows kindness to sinners because of his covenant with Christ. Now, all the scriptures bear witness to Jesus Christ. We know this because he tells us this, both in the Gospel of John and the road to Emmaus, where he unveiled to the disciples all the places in the scriptures, all the scriptures, in fact, which spoke of him. But there are places in the scriptures where Christ is seen more easily, and there's places in the scriptures where he seems to be more obscured. There's places where you have to do more digging, it seems, to really understand how this is talking about Christ. And there are other places where that gold that you're digging for is right on the surface. You can just reach down and pick it up, it seems. You don't have to do much work at all. And that's what this text is this evening. The gold, how it speaks of Christ, is right there on the surface. Now, why are there these parallels, these pictures that talk about Christ in the Bible? It's because the Bible has a divine author. And God, the divine author, wants to make the way of salvation clear to us. He wants to picture it for us, not just give a a lecture for us, because we often learn better in analogies and pictures than by propositions. And so God, in his kindness, gives us pictures all throughout the Bible of what salvation is, of how Christ does what he does, and the love and kindness that he shows to us. And it's that that's before us this evening. It's that which the Lord is teaching us by this encounter between David and Mephibosheth. It's every aspect of salvation here, both God's great ability to save and man's great inability. How deep his mercy is and how great man's need is. It's all present here. In short, God teaches us that he shows kindness to sinners because of his covenant with Christ. And we'll see this in three points. The first being the object of covenant kindness. The second, the display of covenant kindness And third, the motive for covenant kindness. So the object of covenant kindness, then the display of covenant kindness, and third, the motive for covenant kindness. Our first point then, the object of covenant kindness. Who was the object of David's covenant kindness? It was Mephibosheth. And who was Mephibosheth to David? As we've already said, he was a member of this household of Saul. He wasn't an old friend who had proven himself faithful over and over again to David, and now David is repaying him. No, he was from the family of David's enemies. His grandfather was the one who had started this whole business of rivalry and and anger. His uncles were the rebels who had led a war against David. And let's see what the scriptures say about Mephibosheth. First, that he was a fugitive. That he was a fugitive. When the news reached Saul's family that David, um, I'm sorry, that Saul and his sons had died in battle, we're told in 2 Samuel 4 that Mephibosheth's nurse took him up and fled from the city. And she did this because she thought, this is the only heir left to Saul's family and David's going to kill him. David will want to end this once and for all. So Mephibosheth is a fugitive. He runs from David. And this is exactly, is it not, the same as with the sinner. Sinners are fugitives from God. They know that they've sinned. 
They know that God has a right reason to be angry with them, to have wrath against them, and they fear this. So everything that they do is to keep him out of their minds, running, distracting. All of it is an attempt to hide themselves from God. Second, Mephibosheth was a cripple. And this is the defining characteristic that the scriptures present about Mephibosheth. We read both in 2 Samuel 4, as well as at the end of this chapter, that he was lame on both his feet, or in both his feet. And this is exactly the case of those who are outside of Christ. Man in his natural state is crippled spiritually. Both his feet are lame. He can't take a step towards God. He can't keep God's commandments. And this is the unified testimony of the scriptures. God asks the people of Israel in the book of Jeremiah, he says, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard change his spots? And it's a rhetorical question. Of course they can't. And so too, sinners cannot change their hearts to desire to do good unless God change their hearts. The Apostle Paul tells us the same thing when he says the man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them. And our Lord says the same in the Gospel of John, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. Men, women, boys, and girls are totally unable to obey God in their natural state. The preacher, George Whitfield once said, you might as well try to climb to the moon on a rope of sand as try to get to heaven in your own strength. Sinners are lame on both their feet. But why is this? Why, why is man so unable? Why is he so weak? And the reason for this, both in Mephibosheth and in natural man, is this third characteristic. The cause of inability is a fall. And I don't believe I'm, I'm pushing this analogy too far here because uh, the scriptures use this exact word in 2 Samuel 4 about Mephibosheth. It says that as she, the nurse, made haste to flee, Mephibosheth fell and became lame. Mephibosheth fell and became lame. He was not lame until he fell. The, the parallel is so clear here. Our God is gracious to give us a, an accurate picture of our natural state and how God rescues us from that natural state. Humanity only became lame spiritually after our parents, Adam and Eve, fell. God didn't create us this way. No, man was created upright. He had wisdom, knowledge, and righteousness and holiness. But what did our God proclaim after forming man and woman? He said, they're very good. Very good. All of creation is very good. And that's very far from being lame on both feet. No, that lameness, that inability only entered after the fall, when our first parents disobeyed God's command. And since then, all man's spiritual faculties have been crippled. Everyone in this state, everyone who's in the flesh, cannot please God, as Paul says in Romans. The final description of Mephibosheth we want to consider this evening is his name. In the Hebrew, Mephibosheth means that shameful thing. 
that shameful thing. His very name is a testimony to his condition. We don't know why he received this name. I I doubt it was from birth that he was titled this, but rather likely after he was um, crippled, uh, because because lameness at that time in Israel, especially as a member of the royal family, when he had responsibilities to fulfill, it would have been seen as a shame for him to be lame. But whatever the reason is, we find another truth about sinful humanity here, that in ourselves and outside of Christ, we are a shameful thing. We are an unclean thing, Isaiah says. Our righteousness is but filthy rags, the pollution of sin so severe that we can't understand spiritual things. Our very wills are opposed to God, and our consciences are seared. Again, Isaiah says, from the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness, there is no health in us. So this is how the scriptures present Mephibosheth. He's a fugitive, he's a cripple due to a great fall, and he's also a shameful thing. This is how the scriptures present us as well in our natural state outside of Christ, fugitives from God, crippled spiritually because of the fall, and shameful in the eyes of God. But it is to this one that David shows covenant kindness, to this shameful fugitive. And that brings us to the second point, the display of covenant kindness. It's the meeting between David and Mephibosheth, where he displays his kindness. Notice David's action in verse 5. It says, Then King David sent and brought him, Mephibosheth, from the house of Machir. He sent and he brought him. It wasn't a, a message that king requests your presence, because then the fugitive would have been alerted to the fact the king knows where he is, and he would have run off again. But no, the king sends his men, and they Bring him to David. Mephibosheth would never come to David if David did not bring him. And even if he wanted to, he couldn't because his feet were lame. So what does the king do? He brings him, which is exactly what our God does. His powerful spirit brings in sinners. And that's why the gospel is preached. Not because the preacher thinks that his words are sufficient or strong enough to make lame men walk, but because we trust that the Spirit of God works efficaciously on the hearts and wills of sinners through the preaching of the Word. It's the Spirit who brings life. The flesh is no help at all. See also how David calls Mephibosheth by name in verse 6. These two have finally met. The king and the rebel fugitive face to face, but not long face to face because then Mephibosheth prostrates himself in the dust, it says. He uh, pays homage to the king, another translation says. He's fearful to even look him in the eyes, and what does the king do? He utters a single word, Mephibosheth. Our good shepherd calls his own sheep By name, Jesus tells us. He knows each of his sheep's name and he calls them by that name. But Mephibosheth is still frightened. Yeah, the king knows my name, but so what? What does it matter 
that the king knows my name. Because if the king knows my name, he knows who I am. He knows that I'm from the family of his enemies. He knows that I've done the things I've done and that I'm opposed to him, that I'm a fugitive from him. So what does David do? He says, do not fear. Do not fear. And immediately, all of those fears of Mephibosheth, all those concerns and doubts that this king, who he had been running from for many years, they're evaporated in an instant. There's no payback here from David. There's no extortion. There's no punishment. He sees this fugitive, and his words are all compassion. They're all grace. They're all peace. They're all love. This is a difficult lesson for us to learn about our God. If we have slipped into backsliding, we know that we've been on the run from him for a long time, and we think that if we come before him, the only words we'll receive are chastisement and judgment. A scolding is what we think we will get from him. But what did the prodigal son receive from his father when he came back? Did he receive a scolding? Did he receive judgment and chastisement? No, he received immediately the assurance of his father's love in a moment. And the same our God does when a sinner comes in repentance before him. For he resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So come, he will not despise a broken and contrite heart. He doesn't look upon it as a shameful thing. He sees sin as a shameful thing, but not a contrite heart. He will bind it up, and he will heal it. But that's not all that David said. His words weren't limited to, don't fear, now go on, go on your way. As if to say, my kindness only goes so far, only reaches to a certain degree. No, he says, I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table Always. Another translation uses always. Here, regularly, but the same idea. He will be a constant member at the house, at the table of David. Now, this is sheer grace from David. There's no bargaining here. There's no, well, you've been on the run for a while. You do these certain things, and then I'll allow you to eat at my table. No, he gives everything in exchange for nothing. For what can Mephibosheth give to David? He has nothing to offer to this man. He can't bring armies to his side. He's a lame man. He can't muster anything. And so David gives, expecting nothing. So our God's grace is a gift. He is the God of all grace. Not a little here or there, but he gives superabounding grace for where sin abounds, grace super abounds. Not only does David give Mephibosheth life by refusing to kill him, not only does he bless him with peace by saying, fear not, he also receives him into his house. Notice especially that David invites Mephibosheth to eat at his table. Now what this means precisely is seen towards the end of the chapter. In verse 11, so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. He wasn't placed down at the end of the table, far away from the king, far away from the king's sons, far away from everyone who mattered, in a sense. But rather, he was placed there 
adopted into the king's family. And so too, our God gives us this picture of adoption for us, where he's received not as a servant, but a son. So it's with all Christians. They are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. Once an outcast and a fugitive, now he is a member of the royal family. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. And how does Mephibosheth respond to this free grace? Does it become self-important and think that, uh, yes, I did deserve some of this kindness. I, I was once uh, the king's son. I was, I'm related to Saul. I deserve a special portion. No, he says in verse 8, what is your servant that you should show regard for such a dead dog as I? He knows himself. He knows everything that we've looked at already about him. And he knows that it's true about himself. He knows what he deserves from the hand of this king. But God's grace never generates pride in a person. It always creates humility. Christian, when we consider all that our God has done for us, this is to be our response as well. To me? Don't you know who I am, Lord? Don't you know what I've done? You're going to show kindness to me? He does know. And he still shows that kindness. He pours out grace upon grace. To know this kindness of God is to know yourself undeserving of it. Now our third point, the motive for covenant kindness. We've seen who Mephibosheth was, and we've seen what David did for him, and the kindness that he displayed to him. We've seen how that's a picture for us of who we are in our natural state, and of God's great kindness that he shows to us in Christ. But the last point this evening is the motive for covenant kindness. What is it behind this kindness? What promotes it? What generates this kindness? We're told in the very first verse for David, he says, for Jonathan's sake. Is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? What motivated David to show kindness to Mephibosheth was this covenant that he had made with Jonathan. The reason then is entirely external to Mephibosheth. It's for Jonathan's sake. It's because of an oath that David had sworn. It's not because of who Mephibosheth was. We've seen who he was. And if it was reliant upon him, it would collapse in a moment. And once again, behind this historical narrative, this true history, we see a picture of how God saves sinners. Not because of their works or anything pleasing in them that God shows kindness but because of the covenant he has made with his son. As the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians, God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. The kindness which God shows the sinners is because the love he has for his son, with whom he covenanted long before the ages began. 
promising in that covenant to show mercy and grace to all of Christ's house, to all who belong to Christ. Now notice how certain this is, how sure and unmovable, immovable this is. What is its condition? What does it stand or fall upon? Not the objects, not to those whom the love and the kindness is shown, but rather on God's own trustworthiness. God himself is the condition of the covenant. As it says in Hebrews, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. So will it be upheld? Will it be accomplished? Yes, because God promises by his own name there's nothing greater that could be sworn by. He promises he will do it. So remind yourselves of this truth, dear Christian, when your faith is growing weak, when we look at the state of the world and of ourselves, will God show kindness to me? Will he accept me? He has promised by his own name that he will forgive all who in his son believe. Even if that faith is as small as a mustard seed, its presence means that there's true faith. If it is there, then God welcomes you in Christ Jesus. And he does this not because of ourselves, but for Christ's sake, for the sake of his beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. As we draw to a close here this evening, remember what we have seen. Seen the object of covenant kindness. For David, it was Mephibosheth, this lame fugitive who was lame because of a great fall. The object of God's covenant kindness is sinners, those who are rebels against him, who are unable to come to him because of their spiritual lameness. And what kindness was displayed? Mephibosheth was welcomed, was calmed all his fears and was made a son of the king. And so too our God has sent his spirit to draw his people to himself and once they are before him in humility, removes all their fears, names them as sons with every right and every privilege which belongs to the sons of God. And what undergirds it all, what gives it Assurance and confidence. It's the covenant which the Father and the Son made together. For God shows kindness to sinners because of his covenant with Christ. Amen. May God add his blessing to the preaching of his word. Please pray with me. And Father, what kindness you have shown to we who are like Mephibosheth, who in ourselves are rebels and fugitives who flee far from you, from your presence, out of fear, knowing ourselves, knowing our sin. And yet you send your Holy Spirit, and he fetches us from a distant land where we are spending our money and our treasures on things which will not last. And he draws us out of that land into himself, to yourself, Father. And there you welcome us and you throw 
around us a robe of righteousness and put a ring upon our fingers and say, truly this is my son. What kindness you have shown to us, dear Father. We ask that you would take this word, this picture for us from 2 Samuel, and you would widen our hearts as we consider the richness of your kindness. And also that we would be assured of its certainty in times of darkness and times where our friends and foes alike mock and deride us, as we've seen in Psalm 41, that you would assure us of your kindness, for it is for Christ's sake. We thank you, Father, for this word. We ask that we go deep within us and bring forth a harvest of righteousness. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to now respond in faith uh, with a hymn of adoration from the Trinity Psalter Hymnal uh, 181. Now thank we all our God. This will be 181 out of the red hymnal. Now thank we all our God. And we stand as we sing.
Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.